Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm Anissa Beta from the School of Culture and Communication of the University of Melbourne. I'm your host for this week's episode. Despite the fact that Indonesia's deforestation rate reached a historic low last year, social, cultural, and ecological well-being of those whose livelihoods depend on the forest has suffered greatly. Over the past decade, as part of the Merauke Integrated Food and Energy Estate, the indigenous marine people in West Papua have witnessed 1.2 million hectares of their own lands and forests targeted for oil palm and timber plantations. This has led not only to food and water insecurity, but also fundamental shifts in the food and eating habits of the Marin people. Why is this happening? Talking to us this week based on her extensive ethnographic work with the Marin people is Dr. Sophie Chow. Dr. Sophie Chow is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of History, University of Sydney. Her anthropological and interdisciplinary research explores the intersections of ecology, indigeneity, capitalism, health, and justice in Indonesia. Sophie previously chatted with my co-host Gemma Purdy in 2019 on the disrupted lives of the Marine people. In that episode, she detailed the violence, displacement, and dispossession the Marine people experienced for years and decades, especially with the expansion of palm oil industry and the state-backed military presence and occupation. We're so lucky to have Sophia again in Talking Indonesia to talk about food and racism, especially because she just recently published two exciting articles on gastrocolonialism and the political symbolism of the monkey from the perspective of West Papuan indigenous communities. Hi Sophie, thanks so much for joining us again. Hi there Anissa, it's wonderful to be back on Talking Indonesia. To start, I wonder if you could share with us what is gastrocolonialism? Sure. So this uh, term or concept of gastrocolonialism is one that I've borrowed from the indigenous uh, Chamorro scholar, poet and activist Craig Santos Perez uh, to talk about the erosion of indigenous foodways um, and health that is often provoked by the mass importation of cheap processed commodities um, often produced by multinational conglomerations and the growing dependency of indigenous peoples on these cheap processed imported foods. In a recent article um, published in the International Journal of Human Rights called Gastrocolonialism, the Intersections of Race, Food and Development in West Papua, I deployed this concept to explore how um, settler colonial regimes are reconfiguring food systems and food uh, environments in rural West Papua. And there I tried to add a racial dimension to gastrocolonialism by looking at the way in which um, imposed alimentary systems are perpetuating um, and intensifying the racialized violence of capitalism and of imperialism through the medium of foods that are often themselves racialized, uh, whether we're talking about rice, instant noodles, sago, or other kinds of forest foods. 
So what I'm trying to do here with gastrocolonialism is really to think about colonialism, not just as a kind of structure, ideology and concept, but also the way in which gastrocolonialism is literally felt through our gut um, in the sense of everyday foods, foodways and food practices, and the ways in which these foods are given meaning by uh, uh, communities um, in places where settler colonial regimes uh, perdure. You started that article on gastrocolonialism with the Merauke Integrated Food and Energy Estate, uh, Indonesian government mega project for food security, supposedly. Could you explain about that project and its origins to us? Sure. Uh, so the Merauke Integrated Food and Energy Estate, also known as MIFE for short, was a $6 billion uh, mega project launched by the Indonesian government around 2008 uh, in the name of achieving national food security and also making Indonesia a net exporter of staple foodstuffs. This big project was promoted under the slogan, Feed Indonesia and Feed the World, and it was driven by a whole range of factors, um, including the need for regional economic development and rural poverty alleviation in West Papua. And it's a project also that coincides with the 2008 food, fuel and finance crisis, which saw large scale land acquisitions happening across the global south, um, including in Indonesia. Uh, So MIFE, this big project, um, was all about connectivity, um, so connecting Merauke uh, Regency, where I did my research, to other production centers in Papua, uh, all the way to Maluku. And as you said, it was originally promoted as a food sovereignty project, but the reality is that many of the corporations that are operating within uh, MIFE are actually all palm timber and pulp and paper operations. At the moment, MIFE uh, encompasses around 50 different corporations, both national and international, that have been granted permits to establish plantations ranging from 10,000 to over 100,000 hectares. Where I was working in Morocco, um, oil palm plantations in particular um, already covered approximately 1.2 to 1.5 million hectares, and many more companies were seeking permits uh, at the time of my research for cash crop mining and uh, timber concessions. I just wonder if you could speak a bit more about the fact that it was started in the Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono's administration am i correct that's right yes what what are the ways it sort of linked to the previous new order regime's obsession with development and i wonder do you know the reason why it took about almost a decade after reformasi before it's restarted this development like similar projects to um, new order development model what do you think is the reason for that pause in between is it specifically the crisis or is there anything different? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, Yeah, as you rightly point out, um, if there was a project that was first, uh, you know, discussed under SBA's uh, governance and it was one that then intensified and accelerated uh, under Jokowi through the Master Plan for the Acceleration and Expansion of Economic Development 2011-2025. So one of the precursors to this project um, that was sort of in the works during the pause, you know, was was rice paddy cultivation, actually. So the original formulation of MIFE was MIRE, uh, Merauke Integrated Rice Estate. Um, so much in the image of the mega rice project in Kalimantan, um, the original 
original vision was for Merauke to become the rice bowl of the world, right? Lumbang Padina Dunya and the rice bowl of Indonesia. Um, so that project uh, didn't really take off uh, for, for very many years. Uh, and eventually what did materialize was monocrop oil palm and monocrop pulp and paper plantations. Um, and I think it's also important to bear in mind that uh, Mife is, is one uh, manifestation of many other uh, land-based developments that have been happening in, in West Papua since really 1962, right? Since the incorporation of the region into Indonesia. These included pulp and paper projects, logging projects, uh, nickel, copper, and gold mining. So there's a long um, uh, pre, uh, you know, precursor or history of often very top-down resource exploitation um, uh, projects in the region, uh, the latest of which is MIFE, um, but one that has been preceded uh, by all kinds of other corporate activities um, that are now intensified through MIFE. So what kinds of food were usually easily available for the West Papuan indigenous communities before this project, MIFE, started? In your article, you detailed the plants and animals in the forest that they relied on, have deep connection uh, to. So tell us more about that. Sure. Uh, so the particular indigenous community that I had the privilege to live with, um, think with and learn from over the course of my fieldwork uh, in Morocco were the Marind or Marind Anim. Uh, Anim simply means uh, person or human. Uh, and I was working in three uh, villages uh, lying along the upper Bian. Uh, upper banks of the Bian River, uh, Galibian, in Meroke. Uh, and in these uh, neighboring villages, uh, Marind uh, very much continue to derive their subsistence primarily from hunting, fishing, and gathering. Uh, so the ecological makeup of this place is composed mainly of mangroves, of forests, of sago groves, swamplands, marshlands and flat savanna, all of which are uh, sources of uh, a whole range of different um, foodstuffs for marind that are obtained through hunting, gathering and fishing. So the primary food, uh, the staple starch of marind is sago flour, um, which is obtained from the trunk of the sago palm and is processed um, through felling the tree and then rasping the inside of the trunk and then leaching the starch with water repeatedly. Uh, and this staple starch is supplemented with a whole range of different tubers and roots that are obtained in the forest, uh, taro and yam, manioc are some examples. Uh, and then in terms of protein, we've got uh, all kinds of riverine fish and forest game. For instance, the rusa deer, possums, uh, lorises, cassowaries, um, forest fowl, kangaroos, crocodiles, and also wild pigs. Um, then a big part of that diet also is fruit, and um, these include both native and introduced uh, fruit species that also grow in the forest, um, including rambutan, papayas, bananas, uh, traditional mangoes, figs, uh, langsat, kedongdong, uh, and coconuts. Um, and finally, an important part of the diet, and uh, not just in terms of food, but also in terms of medicine, um, are the leaves, roots, barks, resins, and saps that Marind will also obtain from the forest to make all kinds of medicinal uh, ointments, concoctions, um, and foodstuffs that sort of serve a therapeutic um, value uh, as well as a nutritional one. What are the changes that are happening with the Marind people's diet or their eating habits now with the project? 
In the last uh, 10 years or so, um, in the context of deforestation and monocrop um, cultivation in the area, uh, many Marin have found that their access to these traditionally valued forest foods that I just described has become increasingly difficult uh, because the forest itself is becoming increasingly scarce. So in tandem to the loss of forest foods, um, you also have um, a growing dependency on imported foodstuffs in the villages, and such as government subsidized rice, cooking oil, uh, sugar, coffee, tea, instant noodles and biscuits, um, all of which are increasingly consumed by Marind and that now actually form a really important uh, component in their everyday diet. And these are also foods that are often uh, offered by the oil palm companies to communities as part of their land compensation deals or as part of social welfare or corporate social responsibility schemes. Um, so these changes uh, are being experienced by Marind in very culturally shaped ways. So, for instance, they will talk about experiencing uh, hunger for sago. Um, so when they say hunger for sago, they're talking about uh, all kinds of forest foods. Uh, sago is often a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, um, a crystallization of all forest foods. And this hunger is, it's physical, it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of a pain in the body, but people also talk about this hunger as being an emotional pain, right? Um, because it speaks to their spiritual, uh, physical, cultural severance or rupture uh, from the forest life world and from all these uh, you know, plant and animal species who once entertained relationships of feeding and being fed with their human counterparts. So when people talk about hunger for sago, they talk about feeling anger and grief um, because they're no longer able to walk the forest, to encounter plant and animals, to recount the stories and pasts of these non-human beings that they consider to be their kin through relations of descent from ancestral spirits. Um, this hunger for sago um, also speaks to a sort of sense of loss of identity, of rootedness and of belonging uh, among Marind who are now finding themselves excluded um, from the more than human forest worlds that they were once sustained by and also sustained. And in the process, uh, hunger is also linked to the loss of intergenerational knowledge about the forest, about traditional food practices of preparation, procuration, consumption and sharing that are disappearing as the forest and its foods are disappearing. Um, and so that in turn has important implications for the sense of pride and self-worth of the men who would, um, you know, before teach the younger generations how to hunt the woman who, who would teach young girls how to process sago and the elders who would teach uh, younger generations all the stories and lore and myths surrounding traditional forest food. So it's a really profound sort of cultural, ecological and alimentary kind of erosion or dispossession um, that's happening um, in Meroki at the moment. And if I might add just a little bit about these uh, imported commodities, uh, just given the link with gastrocolonialism that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so as I was saying, um, imported foods like rice, instant noodles and biscuits, um, they now compose almost four fifths of the daily food intake of Marind in rural Merauke. And what's really interesting is that um, these foods are often contrasted by Marind with forest foods on a number of levels. Uh, they're said to be, uh, you know, bland and tasteless, uh, dry and unpalatable, not just because they're nutritionally often quite deficient, you know, they're high in sugar, high in salt, but also because people talk about them as alien foods. Um, nobody knows where they come from, who produced them, and they tend to come from faraway places. Their variety is often quite limited. 
Uh, and so people talk about you know what they call city foods or modern foods as not being nourishing because they don't taste of the land, right? There's no cultural connection to these particular foodstuffs. Uh, and often people often say that uh, imported foods, they not only fail to make you feel ganyang or satiated, but they actually make you feel more hungry the more you eat them. Um, this was something that I heard all the time in the field, uh, for instance, mothers talking about their children eating instant noodles and then being hungry within a few hours, or young women talking about having a craving for processed biscuits, which they would snack on throughout the day but never feel full, um, and also young men who would talk about having become addicted to rice, um, which they consumed in large amounts, but they never felt, uh, again, satiated, right? So there's this contrast here that they identify between the satiation you can get from forest foods like sago, where you can go without food for an entire day, and then these city or imported foods that you always crave, but that never fully satisfy you. Have there been any health consequences from these changes, that addiction to rice, that sense of empty satiation from the biscuits and the city food? Yes, absolutely. And so a big part of my uh, research in West Papua was precisely trying to understand not just the ways in which culture shapes the way that Marind understand hunger, but also the, uh, you know, the physical uh, nutritional impacts of uh, deforestation and monocrop oil palm expansion uh, on indigenous uh, you know, bodies. Uh, and so what I found was that the scarcity of forest foods compounded with the substitution of forest foods with introduced commodities like rice and instant noodles had resulted in really high and unprecedented rates of wasting, stunting and low body weight across all 14 sub-districts in the uh, Regency of Merauke. So uh, some of these uh, conditions uh, include uh, chronic protein energy malnutrition, or PEM, which uh, is particularly prominent among infants and children, uh, and that manifests physically in the form of uh, short stature, poor muscle growth, weak teeth and bones, um, a weak immune system. Uh, and all of these conditions then in turn uh, render uh, people more vulnerable to diseases like pneumonia, measles, uh, respiratory infections, bronchitis, uh, and a whole range of other gastrointestinal and musculoskeletal uh, conditions. Among adult men and women, uh, the data that I obtained from the Puskismas, the community health clinic, uh, suggested that there had been an increase uh, in cases of premature births, miscarriages, uh, anemia, and goiters that were caused by iron and iodine deficiencies, respectively. Um, and uh, stunting in babies was particularly high and increasing uh, as well. Uh, and what was really clear from comparing the data on malnutrition, wasting and stunting with the data on deforestation was that there was a really strong positive correlation between the two, right? So in, in very simple terms, where forest loss occurs, higher rates of malnutrition tend to follow. So there are implications here, not just for environmental health, but also for human health. Um, and the two are very much joined at the hip. And obviously that will cost the government a lot too with these health consequences that is created by the deforestation right now, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's costs on all sorts of levels, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I think it's important to bear in mind that the data I was able to obtain from the Puskismas was the data that uh, came from villagers who had traveled often several days from their villages by boat uh, or by foot to even be able to reach the Puskismas in the Kabupaten, right? Um, so that doesn't include all the villagers who either couldn't afford or were otherwise uh, unable to actually reach the Puskismas and all those cases go uh, undocumented. So it's a very conservative estimate of the sort of scale of the health crisis that we're talking about. And you mentioned something about that addiction to rice. And there's this common saying uh, among Indonesians or that Indonesians are well known for, that they're only feeling full or kenyang when they've eaten rice, So, which is obviously very Java-centric. And in your article, you discussed that, and you mentioned just now of this foreign rice being pushed or forced into their lives of the indigenous communities and their diets. So what is at the heart of this government project of pretty much forcing of rice into the West Papuan diet? Yes, um, in so many ways, what you've described, uh, you know, with relation to Kenyang in the rice context in Java is very comparable to Sego in West Papua, right? Where the saying is that Papuans only feel full or Kenyang when they eat Sego. Uh, so I think in answering this question, I, I want to highlight that I think that there are more, you know, there are conscious and subconscious elements at play here in terms of the government project of bringing or introducing rice uh, and normalizing it within the West Papuan diet. So one of the sort of explicit um, dimensions of this project that became really clear to me in attending government meetings, uh, you know, in the villages uh, in Merauke was that uh, the adoption of rice uh, was often framed in government and corporate discourse as a way for Papuans to leave behind and abandon their forest-based way of life, which was often framed as primitive, backwards, and poor, right? Um, so here the idea is that integration into a, a commodity uh, food system um, is a sort of way of civilizing or uplifting Papuans from their traditional uh, way of life and from their rural poverty. Um, and this is, of course, really problematic for many Papuans because they often read a sort of, a, yeah, a, a very paternalistic or um, patrimonial, one might also say racial dimension to this discourse where forest-based ways of life that they deeply value and cherish are being cast as backwards and uh, necessary to kind of displace or remedy. Um, I think that discourse sits within a broader project uh, of modernizing West Papua, which continues to be one of the most you know, economically backward parts of Indonesia in terms of GDP and so forth. And so food transformations are part of a broad, broader uh, developmental project of uplifting the region itself, economically, culturally, socially, nutritionally, politically, and thereby integrating it uh, within, the, uh, within, within the developing nation state that is Indonesia. Um, I want to go back to Sego here because I think it's an important part of the story uh, in the sense that uh, rice is often um, in government discourse uh, juxtaposed or contrasted to Sego specifically, this particular foodstuff. Um, and this is not new uh, to the modern history of, of Indonesia. It's something that's been documented in a lot of colonial archives. Um, this characterization of Sego as the lazy man food or the poor man food, right? Um, Sego is not 
a plant that is cultivated. It's one that grows wild. So you go to harvest it. And this idea of traveling across the landscape to obtain sago starch is often associated in colonial um, and government discourse as, again, primitive, a hunter-gatherer way of life that is inferior to a cultivation, agriculture-based way of life, right? Um, and that is an associated, as you could tell from those terms I use, with a sort of uh, a behavioral uh, disposition of the people who eat sago, right, as lazy or poor or, uh, you know, degenerate in some way or another. So I think the stigma surrounding sago itself um, is, is really important to the story. And there are similar examples from Mentawai, also from the Tojean Islands, where rice is often, uh, you know, characterized as, as a more civilized foodstuff um, compared to, to sago. Have there been any efforts to fight back against this project by the indigenous communities? Yeah, absolutely. There's been a whole array of different efforts to fight back um, by communities, uh, often in coalition with local and international NGOs, um, both social and environmental, in the course of the last 10 years. And these efforts have taken place at international, national and local levels. Um, so at the international level, uh, the violation of Marin's right to land and livelihoods and food security caused by MIFE um, has been hi highlighted in three submissions um, from the communities and uh, CSOs to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination under its urgent action and early warning procedures. These submissions were made in 2011, 2012, and 2013. Uh, and the complaints were further reiterated in two formal communiques to the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in 2013. At the national level, there's been a huge amount of advocacy um, through the National Human Rights Commission, Komnas uh, Ham, jointly with also NGOs, uh, including Walhi, Busaka, Sawit Watch, and Aliansi Masyarakat Adat Nusantara, the Indigenous Peoples Alliance of the Archipelago, again, trying to uh, raise this issue of the violation of the right to consent, to food security, and to land um, that is enshrined uh, in, in Indonesian law and also in international human rights frameworks. And then at the local level, um, efforts to fight back have taken different forms from protests and demonstrations to blockade and petitions to efforts for, towards grassroots participatory mapping of indigenous lands and forests. Also, uh, there's been ongoing demands for compensation for lands that were taken without consent. Um, and there's also been a lot of interesting uh, investigatory uh, work on the legality of the oil palm companies that are operating in Morocco, many of which have been actually found to be operating outside um, the frameworks of national legal uh, requirements in terms of their business permits. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, for all these ongoing efforts to fight back, um, justice or remedy has yet to be delivered to many Marind on the ground. Um, so, for instance, the government has not yet responded uh, to the concerns that were raised uh, in the UN submissions that I just described. Um, many of the advocacy campaigns have been limited by the lack of accurate uh, and up-to-date information about the corporations that are active in Morocco. There's a very limited awareness among communities of their own rights under both provincial, national and international laws. Um, and of course, we're talking about a part of Indonesia that is plagued by poor infrastructures, high travel costs and prevalent military presence, um, all of which make access to the area difficult uh, and often dangerous uh, for the NGOs that are trying to support communities in their um, efforts to secure their, their rights. 
Would you say that uh, there is an increasing awareness among young people outside West Papua, you know, the young activists online? I assume that when you said that because of the difficulty of the logistics just to get there, it's difficult, it's highly militarized, that there might not be, you know, any awareness at all among young people who are outside West Papua. Yeah, um, I think there's definitely a growing awareness um, in the sense that the environment is a shared concern, right? And the environmental crisis that oil palm developments, among other industries, are contributing to is a growingly shared concern across Indonesian youth. And palm oil um, is also a growing shared concern. And there's a heightened awareness of its adverse environmental impacts. And so certainly I would say that there's a really growing awareness among activists uh, in Indonesia of uh, the ways in which uh, agribusiness is undermining, uh, you know, forested landscapes and biodiversity uh, in West Papua. And this includes activists that I was working with uh, in Java um, and also activists who are working under the ambit of religious organizations and notably the Catholic Church, which is very active um, in Papua and has all kinds of humanitarian uh, connections across the Indonesian archipelago. Um, student awareness, I would say, is certainly raising, particularly among students uh, in Java who are encountering uh, or coming to understand uh, life and cultures of West Papua through Papuan students who are themselves studying abroad, uh, not abroad, but outside of Papua. Um, and those sort of inter-student connections, I think, are a really, really hopeful um, channel or pathway towards uh, changing perceptions uh, and changing understandings of what exactly it means to lose a forest um, for Papuans who have always cultivated these really intimate and ancestral relationships with the forest environment as a source of food, but also a source of relationships with human and non-human beings. I think the one issue that's still, um, you know, problematic and that, you know, many young people and activists are trying to overcome is that often uh, these issues in Papua are often seen as either social issues or political issues or environmental issues. Yeah. Um, and that speaks, I think, to a broader problem with the nature culture divide where social and environmental issues are seen as separate and often hard to reconcile. Um, and I think there there's some really important work to be done in terms of rethinking nature and culture as separate things uh, and thinking the, about the ways in which losing a forest is also losing a cultural identity and vice versa, right? So getting beyond these sorts of um, divides that sort of categorize problems in ways that don't actually reflect the way that these problems or changes are being experienced uh, by people on the ground. Um, and I also want to note that one of the uh, you know spaces where I'm seeing a lot of student engagement with issues in Papua in relation to environmental justice is actually in overseas um, um, among diasporic uh, Indonesian students in the US and elsewhere, uh, just earlier this year, I was invited to speak alongside journalists from Mongabay uh, at UC Berkeley, a panel organized by Indonesian students who are studying environmental justice and climate justice and who wanted to hear about you know, what was happening in Papua and to understand what their degrees, what their studies could do to help address and understand um, these issues. Um, so there's also a diasporic uh, you know, raising of awareness that's happening, which is really, really exciting. That's a great segue to my next question, actually, to just uh, uh, focus now on the racism part of, of our conversation. And I really want to talk a little bit about the other article that you just published this year on the monkey as a political symbol for young Papuan students in 2019 anti-racism protests, particularly those students, Papuan students who are in Java studying right now. And 
you said in that article that this is an important strategy by the students and that they are subverting the meanings of monkey or monyet uh, amongst Indonesians. And in the article, you describe how they are deploying the monkey's animality. Could you say a bit more about this? Sure. Um, and thank you for giving me the chance to speak a little bit to, to this second article, um, which focuses on the, as you said, the, the anti-racism protests uh, that unfolded across various towns and cities in, in Papua in the summer of 2019. Uh, as a bit of context, uh, these protests were triggered initially by footage of Papuan students who were being abused with racial slurs um, in their dormitory in Surabaya. And they had been uh, accused of burning the Indonesian flag and later on reportedly uh, were arrested and, and tortured in detention. And the protests that happened following this incident um, in the summer of 2019 were some of the most uh, unprecedented in terms of scale frequency and duration in the modern history of West Papua. Um, they were also different in terms of their symbolic substance. And that's where I uh, the figure of the monkey comes in. Um, the figure of the monkey is one that's often uh, deployed in uh, popular and official discourse to characterize Papuans as primitive, wild and uncivilized tribes. Uh, and indeed, during the uh, attacks on these Papuan students in 2019, um, they had been, uh, you know, racially labeled as monyet, monkey, or kera, uh, or ketek, uh, the colloquial term for black monkey. So the monkey is a very racialized uh, symbol. But at the same time, there was something really interesting happening during these protests, um, in that the figure of the monkey itself was actively harnessed by the Papuan demonstrators um, alongside more conventional political symbols like the Morning Star, the West Papuan flag, and the slogan Papua Merdeka. Uh, so as a few examples, during the protests, many of the demonstrators uh, that included Papuans and also non-Papuans wore full body costumes, masks, and headdresses of black-furred chimpanzees and gorillas when they were marching down the streets uh, or when they were sitting in peaceful protest in front of government buildings. The protesters were holding up drawings of monkeys on their banners and placards, along with the slogans, we are not monkeys, or the monkeys take to the streets. Um, and there was a flurry of monkey-themed anti-racism hashtags that were shared by people on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. These uh, hashtags included, you know, Papua Bukan Monyet, Papuans are not monkeys, and Kami Druga Manusia, we are also humans. But they also included other uh, hashtags like hashtag Sayamonyet, I am monkey, and Papua Monyet. So something interesting was going on here. And the article that I wrote was really trying to unpack the different meanings that the figure of the monkey holds for West Papuans themselves, the people who are often labeled as monkeys uh, in, in institutional and, and popular discourse. So I interviewed uh, indigenous marine activists and students who had been involved in the protests um, during the summer of 2019. And what came out of this, uh, these interviews and the prior fieldwork I conducted in Papua was that the monkey actually had all kinds of conflicting and different meanings for different Papuan activists. So I'll run you through some of these different meanings. Um, first of all, people would talk about the monkey as a non-human entity, right? So here, when the monkey is compared to Papuans, uh, it is conjuring the dehumanization of Papuans as sort of second-rate citizens whose dignity and rights as humans are being denied both in everyday life and before the law. So this proposition runs, um, you know, we are not monkeys because we are human. 
But there were other activists who argued that the fact that the monkey is an animal doesn't mean that the monkey also doesn't have a world, have agency, have dignity, and have a meaning of its own, right? So here they were saying, uh, we are not monkeys, but monkeys matter too. Just because they're not human doesn't mean that they don't deserve respect and dignity. A third way in which Papuans interpreted the monkey was as a quasi-human entity, as a, as a nearly human being, right? And here Papuans would talk about how the monkey speaks to the discourses that are framing Papuans as pre-modern subjects who need to be civilized, uplifted from their poverty through development. So here the idea is we are monkeys because we are monkeys because we are not yet human, right? So it's a kind of a liminal category, not animal, not human, somewhere in between. A fourth way in which these activists talked about the monkey was uh, in terms of its foreignness. Monkeys are not native to Papua. Uh, most Papuans have never seen or encountered a monkey before. And many of them actually associate the monkey with other parts of Indonesia, right, where these species are in fact native. So here it was interesting um, because for them, uh, the argument went something along the lines of we are not monkeys because monkeys are not Papuan. So there was an interesting kind of native, non-native, alien, uh, uh, endemic sort of distinction here that made the comparison between Papuans and monkeys a little bit um, paradoxical in the sense that monkeys are not native species to Papua. And finally, another way in which Papuans talked about the monkey um, was in terms of its conflicting position as an endangered and protected species. So many Papuans know that uh, monkeys are, uh, certain species at least, are increasingly endangered as a result of logging, deforestation, and oil palm expansion. And here, actually, they would say, yeah, in fact, Papuans are very much like monkeys because we too, our lands, our forests are also endangered. Our native species are also becoming endangered. So we could, we share something in common here with the monkey in terms of the threats that are posed to our lives, forests, fates, and futures. Um, then again, there was a really interesting debate among the uh, people I interviewed about the, uh, the, the identity of monkeys as protected species, because many Papuans told me, ah, yes, monkeys are endangered in many parts of Indonesia, but they're also protected. There are all kinds of environmental conservation and biodiversity conservation schemes that have now been established to protect the monkey. And many would say that in many ways, um, Papuans also need to be protected, um, you know, in the same way that endangered species are, but they are not being protected. They are often collateral victims of capitalist projects, but there are no similar initiatives to protect Papuan lives and Papuan cultures, right? So this brought in a really, um, in some ways, quite provocative argument on their part, which was, we are not monkeys. But sometimes monkeys matter more than Papuans. So there was a really curious kind of, um, you know, debate happening here about the relative value of human and non-human life, the way in which racializing assemblages position Papuans as subhuman or not yet human before the law, and the ways in which even if monkeys are not human, monkeys matter too, because they are non-human species, deserving of life, deserving of respect, the same way humans do. My last question may sound a bit naive, but I wonder if you could explain to us why Papuans until today still have to deal with multiple forms of discriminations and racisms, despite their rich indigenous knowledges and also their youth critical and, as you just explained, strategic capacities to subvert stereotypes. Why, why is it still happening, Sophie? Thank you for that um, important and really challenging question, Anissa. 
I mean, I think to understand um, why these forms of discrimination and racism perdure, we have to look be, you know, prior to the modern history of, of Indonesia and Papua to, again, the early accounts of Western explorers uh, who visited um, Melanesia, Indonesia, and who from the very earliest accounts uh, often uh, created this juxtaposition between black Melanesians and brown Malays. And throughout a lot of these accounts, you see um, that often the black the blackness of Melanesians is cast as an inferior trait to Malay peoples, right? Um, so there are early precedents, and I think this 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 conjunction of blackness and animality is again one that is not unique in any way to the Papuan context. It's one that is at the heart of racial um, regimes in the United States. It's one that's been denounced through the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's one that the cultural um, uh, critical race theorist Claire Jean Kim calls um, the framing of the human as both not animal and not black. So blackness always historically has been tethered to a sort of subhuman, not yet human animality. And I think that's an international uh, problem. It's an international issue that is also manifest in, in Papua. Um, you know, I think, as you were saying earlier, uh, the lack of direct encounter, the fact that many Indonesians have not had the chance to travel to Papua, to meet Papuans on Papuan land, it is a big part of why these stereotypes and discriminations perdure. Um, there, are, there is a whole body of scholarship that has explored the way in which tourism and media representations of Papuans contributes to their stereotyping as primitive, savage, wild, backward tribes, right, that are often characterized as violent, uh, you know, plagued with intertribal warfare and so forth. So there are media representations in film uh, and in touristic brochures and so forth that very much capitalize on this stereotypical image of Papuans as wild and savage in all the negative and romanticized ways in which that stereotyping can manifest. I want to add that I do think that things can and are changing. Uh, going back to that earlier piece that we were discussing about the monkey and anti-racism protests in Papua, uh, it's really important to note that key among the non-Papuan organizers and participants of the protests were students um, and activists uh, who are members of the Indonesian People's Front for West Papua, or FRIWEPE, which is a coalition, uh, a national coalition established in 20, 2016 in support of Papuan people's rights. Uh, and one of the key spokespersons of this organization, Suryanta, uh, was one one of the six activists who was found guilty of treason um, following the protests uh, for participating in these demonstrations and supporting West Papuan movements for rights. So things can and are changing. Uh, I think it's all going to uh, be key. It's all going to uh, be dependent on encounter um, across uh, Java and Papua, right? Uh, for people to go and visit Papua and to understand what ed everyday life is like on the ground um, and the, the strengths and richness of indigenous knowledges and cultures. And I think it will depend a lot on dialogue also, uh, both across Papuan and non-Papuan students, but also vertical dialogue between governments, corporations, NGOs, communities and students, all of whom have a voice, all of whom are a stakeholder um, in, in the sort of transformations that are happening in Papua, um, and all of whom uh, need, to be, uh, need to be included in these conversations uh, about the future of this region, and the future of its culture, of its ecology, uh, and of its people, um, and its implications for national level, developmental and infrastructural processes and projects. Thanks so much, Sophie, for such a brilliant conversation. And thank you for coming back to Talking Indonesia to share with us your research. Many thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you.
That was my talk with Dr. Sophie Chow, a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of History, University of Sydney. Sophie's first book, In the Shadow of the Palms, More Than Human Becomings in West Papua, was awarded the inaugural Duke University Press Scholars of Color First Book Award in June 2021, and the book is forthcoming with Duke University Press in June 2022. Sophie previously worked for the International Human Rights Organization, Forest People's Program in the United Kingdom and Indonesia, and she has undertaken consultancies for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. For more information about Sophie, please visit morethanhumanworlds.com. I will also link Sophie's recent publications in the episode notes. Talking Indonesia will return on the 7th of October with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. You can find Talking Indonesia at Indonesia at Melbourne blog and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Talking Indonesia podcast with me, Anissa Meta. Bye for now. Thank you.